What is the mission of quasi-mercenary organizations throughout the world today? Why do governments choose to use mercenaries rather than their own armed forces or those of partner national armies or international organizations such as the UN? That is the subject of this episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. Welcome back to The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. I'm Chris Mayer. Before I dive into this difficult question, I want to take a couple of moments to talk about a recent event, Memorial Day. Last week, we celebrated Memorial Day in the United States. Now that holiday, cookouts, and getaways are over, I want to say a little bit about what this day is all about. I imagine that anyone who listens to these podcasts already knows what it's about, but maybe I can add something to your knowledge that you can drop in casual conversation sometime. The short answer, of course, is that it commemorates those Americans who gave their lives in our nation's wars and other armed conflicts. It can be a little confusing for some, and especially our Commonwealth friends and allies, as they commemorate that on November 11th, which they call Remembrance Day. We celebrate November 11th as Veterans Day, the anniversary of the end of fighting in the First World War, where we give thanks to all of those who have served in our nation's armed forces in peacetime and in war. Why, in the United States, do we have a different day for remembering our fallen? Wouldn't it be better to use the same day as those we fought beside in the First World War? Here, then, is where I might be able to provide a little something that you didn't know before. The day we commemorate as Memorial Day predates the Great War in Europe. In fact, it goes back to 1868, when Major General John Logan, the head of the Civil War Veterans Association known as the Grand Army of the Republic, established May 30th as a day to remember the 350,000 men who lost their lives to end slavery in the United States. The day was then called Decoration Day, as individuals and entire communities would, in the words of General Logan, decorate the graves of the fallen with the choicest flowers of springtime. At the end of the First World War, the commemoration was broadened to include those who fell in that war repaying our debt to France for coming to our aid in the Revolution. At that time, the poppy also became a symbol of remembering those who died, inspired by the poem In Flanders Field. The poppy was adopted by the American Legion as its official symbol of remembrance. The Royal British Legion and its Commonwealth counterparts adopted it soon thereafter, but choosing November 11th as a more appropriate date for their national remembrance. Since the end of the Second World War, Memorial Day remembers all of those who gave their lives in any of our nation's wars and armed conflicts. It is said that the offices of the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff overlook Arlington Cemetery to remind them of the cost that must be paid for their decisions. It is my hope that through these podcasts we all keep in mind the price that must be paid in war, and that we carefully consider whether what we intend to gain by that war is worth the death of even a single American life, and whether we can explain that to the widow, widower, orphan, or grieving parents who pay the true cost. Now, back to our regularly scheduled program. So why do governments use mercenaries? For the purposes of these series of podcasts, I will use the term mercenary quasi-mercenary, and mercenary-like almost interchangeably. I'm not using the term mercenary according to its rather troubled definition in international law. Instead, 
I'm using the definition in the Cambridge Dictionary, which is a soldier who fights for a foreign country or group for pay. So the criteria are fighting, meaning direct participation in hostilities or combat, foreign country, directly supporting a national military establishment other than that of the individual's citizenship, and for pay, regardless of who pays them. And sometimes it can be difficult to identify the true paymaster. Previous podcasts looked at why some governments, such as Russia, use mercenary-like organizations as part of their foreign policy. The primary reasons include a desire to avoid culpability for the actions of these mercenaries, including liability under international law and deniability to their own population. Russia is not alone in this. In the 1960s and 1970s, France used mercenaries, notably under the command of Bob Dinar, to promote French strategic interests in Africa without attribution to France and limiting risk in the event of failure. The French were sometimes aided in this by mercenaries funded and sometimes controlled by the CIA. Another reason could be that a government has the money but not the manpower for foreign intervention. A current example could be the funding of mercenary-like groups in Yemen and Libya by the United Arab Emirates. Rather than re-examining that side of the mercenary question, I would like to look at what I did not discuss in previous podcasts, or what I only touched on. That is, why would a government hire mercenaries to operate in their own country? I will use the use of private security companies as an analogy. In previous podcasts, I said that using PSCs was appropriate in situations where public security forces were unavailable, unsuitable, or inappropriate. We can look at private military companies to include mercenary-like entities in the same way. A nation just achieving independence or coming out of civil war or other man-made catastrophe may not have an established military force, but may still face threats from insurgents or hostile neighbors. That nation may have had an army at one time, but it may have been disbanded as the result of a comprehensive peace agreement. Standing up an army takes time. And the hardest part is training up competent military leaders to command those soldiers. The United States faced similar problems in our own Revolutionary War. To address that problem, it brought in foreign military officers such as Frederick von Steuben from Prussia, who trained the Continental Army to fight like an army, Sadius Kosciuszko from Poland, known as the father of U.S. military engineers, Kazimierz Pulaski, also from Poland, who is known as the father of the U.S. Cavalry. Other mercenaries in command of U.S. forces in the Revolution included Gilbert de Lafayette, Philippe de Coudray, Louis de Portet, and Johann de Kalb, all from France, Michael Kovacs from Hungary, and many others serving as brigadiers, colonels, and captains. Similarly, emerging governments may contract with individual mercenaries or private military companies to train their armed forces to meet basic military standards or in advanced combat techniques. Often, this includes leading these troops in training into combat. But given the situation in the world today, why hire mercenaries or private military companies? Why not work directly with the international community such as the United Nations, NATO, or the African Union? Why not request help from an established military power that conducts security assistance for other countries, such as the United States, Great Britain, France, or Russia? K-12 
Can't one or another of these options provide the training needed for effective security sector reform? Well, maybe not. United Nations peacekeeping forces are thinly spread among the many hotspots of the world today. Political reasons may limit the ability of these other governments, whether acting individually or as troop contributors to an international organization, to send any military trainers at all, or not enough military support to meet the needs of the country needing assistance. Foreign or international troops are likely to be even more unavailable if the training involves the prospect of direct participation in hostilities. Although most of what I have said is about Africa, there are examples on other continents too. One noteworthy example is Croatia, fighting for its territorial integrity after the breakup of Yugoslavia. It hired the U.S. firm MPRI to train and equip its new army when the U.S. and NATO was uninterested in providing direct military assistance. This training suddenly transitioned to command and control of active combat operations to push Serbian forces out of Croatia and forced Serbia to the peace table after NATO airstrikes proved insufficient. As I reported in the previous podcast, governments hire PMCs because, as Colonel Lionel Dyke of the private military company Dyke Advisory Group said, we are doing something that nobody else can do or has wanted to do, so use what you've got. So much for regular forces being unavailable. What about unsuitable? Even when foreign or international military assistance is available, they may not have the skill sets necessary to meet the particular needs of the emerging government or its armed forces. Colonel Eben Barlow, who I described in the last podcast, says that the training, equipment, and organization provided by non-African powers does not meet the needs of African countries to defend themselves. He describes Africa as, quote, the dumping ground for bad advice and old and sometimes obsolete weapons from both the East and the West, unquote. Both Eben Barlow and Colonel Lionel Dyke would maintain that much of the security sector reform offered by non-African countries are inappropriate to securing peace in Africa, and the military structures of most African countries reflect the organization, equipment, tactics, and techniques of former colonial powers, and therefore are inadequate. This means that even the regular military forces of African nations may be unsuitable to the needs of an emerging national military force in Africa. I imagine that similar situations exist regarding South America and East Asia. Some African governments seem to recognize that, which is why Angola, Nigeria, Mozambique, Sierra Leone, and others turned to Barlow and Dyke to train and lead their military forces. That other countries turn to Russian irregular forces, such as Wagner, indicate that there may be other reasons for contracting with mercenaries than availability and suitability. Another reason for using mercenaries may be apparent inappropriateness of using the regular forces of other nations. The appearance of uniformed troops of another country, or even an international organization, can create the impression that the host country is unable to defend itself without foreign help. Now, this may in fact be true, but in the developing world where much of the national story centers on the struggle to free itself from colonial powers, the optics of allowing those same powers, or any outside force, to take control of the nation's military structure or depend on those former colonial powers for the nation's defense may be politically unacceptable. Now, what may be unsuitable and inappropriate for one country may be entirely acceptable and suitable for another country, 
although each will have to contend with the availability of adequate foreign military assistance. So much for theory. What about practice? I already spoke about the governments that contracted for support from Executive Outcomes, Sandline, Step, and Dyke, and that Executive Outcomes is being stood up again at the request of African governments. I also said that these companies, former or current, were sensitive to following the laws and customs of war, the specific terms of their contracts to include termination clauses, and even held themselves accountable to the governments they worked for by incorporating their employees into the military of those governments for the duration of their contracts. But what about other mercenary-like organizations, ones that keep themselves separate and reportedly do not even attempt to follow the law of war or human rights law? Companies where transparency and accountability are noteworthy for their absence. What about countries outside of Africa? Why do those countries hire those kinds of mercenaries? The first consideration may be lack of choice. For example, as I described in earlier podcasts in Africa and elsewhere, Russia plays a debt bondage game. They offer military hardware, payment on loan. But then the country finds out it needs technical training on how to use the equipment. So, Moscow offers the use of a Russian company like Concord Management, Lobaya Invest, or Ivorpolis to coordinate for trainers who are Wagner or Wagner-type operators. The Russian holding companies then negotiate the cost of that support, which often includes concessions to the country's natural resources, further limiting the ability of the country to pay its debt for military hardware. I might add that Evropolis, Concord Management, and Wagner are all on the U.S. sanctions list, so a country doing business with them has further isolated itself from the West and increased its dependence on Russia. But they had little choice in the matter. The Central African Republic is an example of this reason for bringing in mercenaries through negotiations with the Russian investment firm Lobaya Invest. The Central African Republic also has UN and Russian regular military trainers further complicating the situation. Russian PMC personnel, identified as Siwa Security Services, have even been seen integrated with UN peacekeeping troops providing security for the Central African Republic president. Other countries may be considered pariah states by the West because of corruption, human rights abuses, or other consistent violation of human rights law. Again, they may find themselves with little choice but to hire mercenaries as no one is coming from the West. In fact, in some cases, such as Sudan under Bashir, the lack of concern for human rights may even be an advantage in suppressing discontent among the local population. Unfortunately, such use of quasi-mercenaries to suppress the civilian population is not limited to pariah states, the Central African Republic being specifically called out for that in a recent report by the UN Working Group on Mercenaries. Closely related to these considerations is prior political affiliation or anti-Western sentiment. These countries aligned themselves overtly or tacitly with the Soviet Union or Communist China during the Cold War. They may still have Cold War-era governments or have a national narrative that is so anti-Western that it makes working with those governments or even international organizations politically impossible. To meet their needs for military modernization, they too turn to mercenary contracts whether independently arranged through Moscow or Russian kleptocrats or pariah states. Syria may fit into all three of these categories. 
others, such as the Haftar regime in Libya, or either side in the recent Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, may simply be responding to whoever can provide the resources for little or no cost to them. This leaves economics as the last possibility I'll discuss. Western, rules-based firms are usually more expensive than mercenaries or PMCs that don't abide by Swiss initiative terms. In other cases, such as the deals brokered by Russian kleptocrats, they may appear less expensive, being paid for through debt bondage loans or natural resource concessions. To restate the plot so far, governments hire or allow the use of mercenaries or mercenary-like organizations within their countries when other options are unavailable, unsuitable, or unacceptable. The mission of these organizations is, primarily, to train the local forces to be able to defend themselves from foreign attack or to become more effective in their own counterinsurgency operations. This mission often includes a subordinate mission of leading or directing government troops in combat until such time as the local national military leaders can conduct such operations for themselves. On the downside, in some cases, the hiring government may desire the repression of the local population to cut popular support for an insurgency or to suppress revolt. Except for that last part, this makes it sound like the reason for hiring mercenary-like organizations is to promote security and stability in the developing world. If so, how can they be considered a threat to peace and security in areas such as Sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East and North Africa, or Eastern Europe? For answers to that question, join me, Chris Mayer, in the next episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare.